This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Hair Loss Cure, A Self-Help Guide. And the author is Dr. David H. Kingsley. And Dr. Kingsley joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hi, Steve. Great to be on. Well, great to have you here. And this is a very, very frustrating, emotional problem for both men and women. I realize that as some of my hair gets a little thin on top. Right. <laughs> you look at it and you I look know. at it, you know, and you go, why is that happening? <laughs> right. Actually, I've, I've been fighting my own hair loss, which was probably one of the reasons why I wrote the book, um, uh, with stress and uh, running my own business, a little bit of genetics and, and such. Um, I noticed a little bit of a, a thinning patch on myself, and I sort of decided to get myself, you know, I, I sort of tell other people what to do. Maybe I should um, look at myself <laughs> as well and sort of change my lifestyle and do certain treatments uh, to help it. And I, I've actually got some improvements, so I'm, I'm pleased with that. Well, I looked at my father at 83 with a full head of hair, and people always said, well, you'll, you'll just have a full head of hair. You know, sometimes it can come from either side of the family. So, uh, you know, you, lifestyle things, a, a lot of different things can, can cause the hair to fall out. Well, tell us some of the things that you try to help people with. Now, it, it's, it's not a, uh, it isn't necessarily one treatment for everybody. There's just a lot of treatments out there. Yeah, um, well... You see, one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book, by the way, I, I'm a, what's called a certified trichologist, which is a hair and scalp specialist. I got my uh, PhD in hair loss research in uh, the University of Portsmouth in the UK. You can hear my, with my accent isn't quite uh, the same as yours. Um, and uh, I have two centers in New York, and obviously a lot of people don't live in New York, so they can't come and see me. So one of the reasons why I wrote this book was to help them, give them a self-help book to see why they're losing their hair. Now, to answer your question, yeah, there's a lot of different things that can contribute to it. In fact, in the book, one of the things I wrote, uh, I, I itemized them in sort of groups, seven groups, if you like, beginning with the letter H, um, heredity, hormones like thyroid. Hassles such as stress, uh, hunger such as diet, protein deficiency, not eating properly, uh, general health, hairdressing mistakes, you know, like over-processing, and also healing problems such as medicines that make your hair fall out and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of things that can make the hair fall out, and therefore, and, and often it's, it's not just one thing that's making your hair fall out. It's a combination. So sometimes you've got to pick two or three different treatments for your specific problem. Well, I noticed you make a statement that is uh, very 
hopeful, you say, remember that not all hair loss is permanent. So there's hope for just about all of us? Well, I mean, that's a great, yeah. I mean, you know, people, when they get hair loss, they, they sort of go into panic mode. They say, oh, my gosh, I'm going bald, and that's it. You know, like, it's got to be genetic, therefore I'm going to look like my my grandmother or grandfather or, or what have you. But there are so many different types of hair loss, some of which are totally reversible back to what it was before the problem. Um, but there are different levels of, of improvement. For instance, if, if you have a hair loss condition that if you didn't do anything about would just continue to get worse and you did something about it and it stabilized, that's helping it. Even if it improves marginally, 20%, 30%, 50%, that's improvement as well. Obviously, everybody wants to get 100%, uh, and some people can, but there are different levels, and, and it's so important for people to realize that. And, you know, they, they, as I said, they go into the panic mode, and, and it affects their quality of life, and, and I have people calling me up crying, suicidal almost. And I say, look, you know, there are things that you can do. Now, you call this, again, a self-help guide. So what you're trying to do is show people a variety of different ways they can hopefully treat this problem. Precisely. I mean, for instance, let's say you have a genetic problem and you have a dietary problem. Now, if you're just going to treat the genetic problem and not the dietary, you know, meaning you're not eating properly or whatever, then you're not going to get this sort of, full improvement that you might be expecting. But if you help treat both sides of it, eating enough protein, eating often enough, plus doing treatments for the genetic side, then you're more likely to get an overall maybe improvement or stabilization of your condition. And, yeah, it's very important that you choose the correct treatments for your problem. Obviously, you need to find out what the problems are, and my book helps you find out those reasons, and then decide what's best for you to use to help those problems. And you've tried very hard to make this a easy-to-read kind of self, self-help guide, not real technical or medical. Yeah, I, I um, have tried to write it to the common man, as it were. You know, um, uh, obviously the positive we, uh, side of things we've already spoken about, I, I try and be informative. I, I try and get right to the point as quickly as possible. And as you say, easy to read. Um, I've had people say, you know, they picked up the book and they, they read right through it. it. It was so easy. And, and that's great. And, and they've said, oh, you know, I had to read it two or three times because it made me feel so good. I'm not so worried about my hair loss. And that, that made me, you know, think it was well worth spending the time to write it. I guess the very first thing we have to do when we discover that we're losing our hair is learn how to cope with it, even because treatment might take longer, but we can cope with it right now. Yeah, you know, the, the problem with hair loss, for instance, if, if you washed your hair this morning and, and you saw like a couple of hairs coming out, um, the, those hairs probably stopped growing approximately three months ago. So you, you're always working behind time. So if you start a treatment today, you're going to have to see the results really in, in, in three months. So how do you cope with waiting for those treatments to work? And um, what I've done, uh, 
slightly different from maybe other books on hair loss issues. I've put in a whole chapter on the psychology and quality of life effects of the hair loss. Um, I, I've even put in a questionnaire, which is called the Kingsley Alopecia Profile, which was actually developed as part of my PhD thesis. And people can sort of fill in the, the questionnaire and find out, sometimes they're surprised just how much their hair loss is affecting their overall quality of life. And then later in the chapter, I explain to them, well, how best to help yourself so that you don't quite feel so bad about it. And again, the positive tone, you know, don't worry. These treatments are going to work. Just give them a little while. And, and people say, yeah, you know, I begin to feel much better when I redo that questionnaire, maybe a month or two later. Hey, you know, it, it's my score is much better. How do you determine why you are losing your hair? Give well, us some insight. Give us a few tips. Well, I think what you have to do is you have to ask yourself some questions. Um, as I said earlier, I, I have those seven H's which I've put in the book um, and um, sort of defined each one. So what you need to do is read them. For, for instance, look at the hereditary side. You know, what's the hair like in my family? What's the hair like in my parents? my uncles, aunts, grandparents. Then you need to look at what medicines you're taking. You have to look at how much stress you're under. You have to look at, is my diet, I think I'm eating okay, but am I really eating okay for my hair? And um, so there are a lot of different issues that you need to um, look at a little bit more closely that you may not even thought affected your hair cycle making it, you know, making it come out or whatever. And once you ascertain, you know, sometimes it's three or four different things. Then you say, right, it's these four things I really feel are causing my hair to come out. Therefore, I need to do these things to help combat that. I mean, obviously, if you're really uh, very concerned in the sense that you can't really pinpoint what's going on, and some of the things you need to do, to be honest, you need to have sort of blood tests. So you might need to go to your physician as well, work with your physician, work with a dermatologist, or work with a certified trichologist. Uh, unfortunately, there aren't that many of them in the U.S., but, you know, if you work with an expert in that area, they'll be able to guide you. Are there certain supplements in general that we should make sure we have enough of, enough vitamins and minerals? Yeah, I, I think that the main thing about diet, and I, I, I um, have my own, uh, supplements, I formulate them uh, for, for different problems. I mean, in women, often a little bit low in iron uh, can, can be a factor. Um, there are certain uh, zinc and certain coppers, B12, that there are many different things that can be contributing to the hair loss. But what I find most important two things about your diet, not so much the supplements, but what and when you're eating it. One, you've got to make sure you're eating plenty of protein because that's what your hair is made out of, about 97% protein. Also, it's a non-essential tissue, so if there isn't enough going around, your hair's the last thing to get it or the first thing that's cut back. And the second thing is eating regularly during the day, like three meals plus snacks or even better, Six small meals a day. That, that is the best type of diet 
then you supplement your diet with some of the supplements that, that I uh, mentioned. You have a whole chapter on monitoring whether the treatment is working. Now, you just said something about, you know, it's going to take a few months right. for it to happen. But what do, we, what do we expect to see and what, I mean, can we really see it happen? It, maybe initially it's very difficult to see. Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I, I don't suggest people really, um, you know, look to monitor it in less than three month increments of time because of that time factor that that, that uh, we spoke about earlier. However, you know, what, what are the two main obvious things to look for? Well, one, you know, if you're noticing more hair coming out, obviously less hair coming out is is going to be a uh, a factor, you know, is there less on the pillows, there less in the wash. But the second thing uh, that occurs with hair loss is that the the, the parting of the um, of your hair becomes a little wider. So what's the other thing to look for? Obviously, you want to see that maybe filling in. You want to see new hair coming in. So you can see those hopefully even before the three months are up, particularly lessening of the hair coming out. But in my book, what I've done, I've got sort of uh, drawings and graphs and things so that people who, and, and, and hair counting uh, techniques and things, so that people who, who like to find out, you know, am I wasting my money, am I wasting my time on this, over three to six months can see just if their hair actually is getting better or not. And if it isn't, then maybe they're going to need to think about either changing their therapy or maybe doing something slightly different, uh, but keep using what they're already using. Men can lose their hair and even look more manly. A baldness is manly, but boy, right. for a woman, that is yeah. devastating. Now, what special advice do you have for women who are seeing their hair? You know, they're losing hair. They're starting to see some real thinness, some even right. some baldness. That's, That's right. got to be devastating. Uh, absolutely. I mean... Um, about 60% of women at some time in their lives experience hair loss, if it's uh, post-pregnancy hair loss, menopausal hair loss, or, or stress, or, or hormonal, or what have you. I mean, about 85% of men also would experience some sort of hair loss during their, their life. So what I suggest men and, you know, you asked about women, specifically would be, you know, to be very proactive. You know, don't sit back and, 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 and like, you know, uh, allow it to consume their lives. Go out, find out what's going on here. Why is it falling out? You know, maybe the blood test. Maybe go and see your physician. Also, a lot of women, you know, will color or perm their hair or whatever to give a little bit more body. No problem as long as part of their issue isn't hair breakage. Because if they color it and, and, and wash it as usual, you know, don't, don't spend, uh, instead of washing it every other day, now you're washing it once a week because that doesn't help at all because the hair loss will just accumulate. So you'll see more coming out. So they need to wash it as frequently as they were. They need to dry it as, uh, as they were doing, as long as it's not too hot or drier. And they need to do whatever, um, hairdressing things that they have to do so that when they look in the mirror at least they say well you know it doesn't look so bad today at least I can go out and feel a little bit more confident about it
We have about a minute left. Dr. Kingsley, what would be some concluding thoughts you'd like to leave with us? There's always hope and don't give up. Not all hair loss is permanent and a lot of hair loss can be helped once you find out the reasons behind it and treat those reasons and don't give up. Well, that's uh, very, very hopeful if we can just stay focused, right, and not giving up. Absolutely. Well, tell us how to get your book. Sure. Um, you can get my book on uh, iUniverse website or Amazon.com um, or on my website, which is hairandscalp.com, or you can call my toll-free number at 888-980-4700. So people can not only get your book, but they can get personalized Advice and service and treatment from you. Yes, yes, we we make our own products uh, to uh, help the hair loss, and also we have certain supplements. And uh, I have a very caring um, staff that will be more than happy to help anybody who would like to go ahead and and do something about their hair loss. Dr. Kinsley, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Dr. David H. Kingsley. He is the author of his book, The Hair Loss Cure, A Self-Help Guide. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
The title of the book, Joseph Franz, A Renaissance Man in the 20th Century. And the author is Joe F. Humphrey, and Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. Hello, how are you? Well, this is your dad, Joseph Franz. That's correct. Your father, and you're very proud of him to write a book. That's really a big tribute to your father. Yes, it is, and it was a long time in the making, I'm sure, uh, I can assure you. The uh, reason I really wrote this book was to honor him because uh, he was really an, a remarkable man in his time, and uh, he brought so much uh, light and culture to the people uh, in the community where he lived in the Berkshires and uh, also uh, created a um, tourist attraction, if you will, uh, that brought people from all over the country and all over the world to the Berkshires. And uh, he also was very innovative in uh, the electrical industry before he became an architect and uh, brought light uh, as well as culture to not only the Berkshires, but many other parts of the country. Now tell us where the Berkshires is. The Berkshires are in western Massachusetts, bordering the uh, New York State border, and are part of the mountains that extend from Connecticut all the way up into Vermont. So a resort area? Yes, it has been a resort area almost since the beginning of uh, mankind, I guess. Uh, it, originally, it was the hunting grounds of uh, the um, Indians, the Mo- part of the uh, Mohegan tribe, um, and uh, they were the Mackinac Indians that uh, basically belonged to the Mohawk uh, nation. And from that point on, um, when the white man came, he was preaching to the Indians to make them uh, Christian and then uh, decided that it was a nice place to live. And a lot of other uh, white folks joined the missionary and Stockbridge became a town in 1735. So your father's 15 years old and he becomes... A immigrant to the United States. Exactly. Now, that's very, very young. It is young, and he came all by himself, although he did have an uncle and cousins uh, here that had come before him. But he traveled all by himself from uh, Austria, actually, to uh, New York. And what, and year, what year was that? That was in, 19, uh, in 1898. And why did he come? Well, uh, at that time, Europe was uh, in the midst of a depression, similar to what we're experiencing now, and uh, work was uh, a little hard to find, and he was an ambitious kid and loved electricity, and from his schooling, he knew that the biggest advances were being made here in the United States at that time. And he convinced his father and mother to let him come to New York to try his luck over here. And they, I guess, thought enough of him and and trusted him enough that they gave him the uh, $30 that was needed to get here, and he (laughs) came. (laughs) The $30. $30. Oh, my goodness. What would that be today? Yes. Uh, You know, who, (laughs) I don't even know. You know, it's probably thousands and thousands, obviously, not afraid to try anything you describe your father. That's correct. 
Uh, he loved uh, science and electricity in particular, and many of the uh, things that were being practiced at that time in the electrical field were not working. And so Father tried other means of doing it. For instance, uh, the underground uh, wiring system, the first underground wiring system was done in Lenox, Massachusetts by uh, George Westinghouse and William Stanley. And um, they had um, a wonderful system, but uh, it was very limited. And when Stockbridge wanted an, um, their own power, uh, electrical power, Father uh, said, well, I can do that. And he managed to get power from um, a factory and put it overhead as far as the town line and then brought it underground uh, into the town of Stockbridge itself because the people there did not want to uh, see these sightly overhead wires, which unfortunately we are now seeing again all over the country. But uh, Father put them underground, and it was the first time that underground and overhead had been connected. And uh, George Westinghouse said, well, it wouldn't work. But Father said, well, I think it will, and he went right ahead and did it. George Westinghouse, the founder of Westinghouse. That is correct. So your father associated with some very top-level uh, inventors and scientists. Yes, indeed he did. Who and, were some of the others that he associated well, with? Well, William Stanley was another one. He uh, also... Oh, knew many, I mean, he knew Edison uh, through his electrical association. Uh, he didn't know him well. Mr. Edison was in New Jersey, and he was in Massachusetts. And the others were up in the uh, Berkshires and other places in uh, Massachusetts. So did he have this uh, understanding right from right from his very earlier years? Yes. I mean, it was just something that he was born with, this gift, this talent. Well, it was a talent for invention. Uh, he came from an inventive family, but he also uh, studied electricity uh, in the uh, school he attended in Vienna. And so he knew theoretically uh, a lot about electricity by the time he got here. But his uh, first job, for instance, in electricity was uh, when he answered an ad in the New York paper uh, for a man who could sweat joints. And, uh, and that uh, meant that you had to put uh, hot lead over a connection uh, that you were connecting on a cable. And um, when he applied for the job, they asked if he knew anything about this. And he said, oh, yes, he did. And on his way home that evening, he bought a few supplies and spent the night in the basement practicing <laughs> to sweat joints. <laughs> <laughs> to learn how, huh? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, that's determination, that's for sure, and, <laughs> and confidence, isn't it? Yes. And that, uh, he must have been a very precocious young man because he would do things like that all the time. And as you point out, he is such an example of the unsung heroes that built this country. It is indeed. I mean, lots of biographies have written, been written about famous people who've done this, that, and the next thing. But very few biographies have come out about people, just ordinary people, who really were the, the people who made, made this country what it is today. Now, let's talk about his, I guess his 
his love for the arts, right? Yes. And, um, and what he was able to contribute there. Give us a little insight. Okay. Well, he had, of course, grown up primarily in Austria, uh, in Vienna. And Vienna is a city of music and culture. And his family uh, loved the opera, and they loved the music in the parks in the summertime. And so he grew up with this already instilled in uh, his soul, if you will. And I know I can remember as a kid, we always had to listen to the Metropolitan Opera every Saturday afternoon because both my father and mother loved the opera. And uh, sometimes I thought it was a little boring, but <laughs> I now have found that I like it too. <laughs> uh, and so it was rather natural after he retired from uh, the electrical field, he uh, did a lot of community services uh, and ran for selectmen in the town and became interested in the uh, possibility of bringing uh, classical music to the Berkshires when the uh, Berkshire Music Festival Committee was formed. And he joined the uh, committee, and uh, it was then through his work with them that eventually when, uh, Tang when the Boston Symphony decided they needed a permanent uh, place to perform, Father volunteered his services, and uh, that's when he designed and built the shed at Tanglewood, which still stands today. Very famous. Yes. Very, very famous, Tanglewood. Yes, and what did your father, how did he talk about all these accomplishments? You know, how did it make him feel? Well, uh, he, of course... With the family, he always talked about how proud he was that he was able to do these things. Uh, I don't know that he bragged a great deal to other people. He, he wasn't that kind of a person. Uh, again, his European background said that, you know, it wasn't um, a good idea to brag about yourself, that your work must stand uh, in for you. In other words, you should do the job that would... Uh, bring you credit. And unfortunately, that didn't quite work in this country because uh, people really uh, didn't, didn't question who did what. They just assumed that it was there and, and uh, never questioned who did it in many cases. And this was kind of the case. It was a big disappointment when he didn't get more um, credit and more pr uh, uh, praise from Tanglewood, particularly from Jacob Spillow, he's always gotten very good uh, uh, recognition. Did that bother him? Yes, it and, did. Right, I'm sure. You know, everyone can act a certain way out in public, but in private moments or with the family. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. when when no, uh, we knew. And as a matter of fact, we've had a. Lifelong battle with the uh, uh, giving him credit for for Tanglewood. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, that is that is a shame. You know, as you point out, I think in what in the introduction, uh, who, who someone talked about the importance of you know probably other people aren't going to brag about you. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And uh, as I say, that was part of his uh, European background. As I said, the professors always said that. Your work will stand for you. Well, yeah, it does, but it doesn't. Not in this country in any case. 
Now, you had a particularly interesting challenge to write this book because <laughs> of your father's journals. Now, tell oh, us that yes. challenge. Well, when he was a young man, uh, he kept uh, journals. They weren't uh, diaries or uh, really interesting uh, literature that some people have written. He kept a journal of uh, what time he got up in the morning, what time he went to bed at night, what he ate that day, maybe once in a while if it was special, and what appointments he had that day. It was really kind of an appointment book. And uh, I found these, well, my brother actually found the, the books uh, in his, uh, uh, mem- you know, in his collection of things when he died. And I had looked at them many years, and I said, oh, God, I'll never be able to translate these. And eventually, the challenge got to me, and I said, all right, I'm going to try. (laughs) But they were written in the old German script, and a hand of a 15-year-old in German, uh, no matter what language it is, is not as legible as an adult is, which made it even worse. And I don't think Father really learned to spell any better in German than he did eventually <laughs> in English, which made it even more complicated. Um, but I spent over a year translating these little tiny, and I do mean little tiny journals, um, that uh, uh, took me, as I say, over a year to uh, get through 15 years' worth. What was a surprise to you when you gleaned all this information about your father, did something stand out that you went, oh, my goodness, I, I never would have known that? Well, yes, there were many such incidents, which I found in these little tiny journals. I, for instance, never knew that he owned a boat, <laughs> that he had saved his money to buy, uh, to have a boat made, actually, for him. And I presume that it was a motor boat, uh, a little lo- motor launch of some kind. It cost him $250. <laughs> Um, so, it, you know, that was pretty, pretty pricey for, uh, a young guy that wasn't making much more than 25 to $30 a week. He had to save for some, some length of time. Anyth- that was a surprise. Anything else? One other thing that kind of stood out to you? Well, the one time when he almost drowned, I guess, was one of the incidents, uh, he loved to swim and they, he and friends used to go to the, uh, East River uh, in uh, from the Bronx, and they'd uh, row out a ways, and then they'd get out of the boat and swim around and get back in and row back in. But one day he went by himself because he couldn't find anybody else to go with him, and uh, he got out of the boat, and he'd float. He loved to float, and he'd float around and float around and float around, and pretty soon he looked up, and the boat was gone out to sea because the tide was going out. And uh, he said that he uh, he was a good swimmer at that point in time, and uh, he really swam as hard as he could and, and made it back to the boat, but he couldn't row back in because he was so exhausted. And it was over. It was not until about 2 o'clock in the morning that he finally got home that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a lot of just... Um... The, con- the determination of an immigrant of to make it in America, that's really what his book is all about, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Well, good for you, Joe, that you've been able to do this, and we appreciate you sharing some of the book with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can get it uh, through iUniverse.com, uh, or uh, you can also get it through... Um, 
Barnes & Noble if you're near a Barnes & Noble place. Well, very good. Well, thanks again. Okay, thank you for calling. That was Joe F. Humphrey. He is the author of her book, Joseph Franz, A Renaissance Man in the 20th Century. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Living Peacefully in a Big City, A Guide to Maintaining Your Sanity, Health, and Happiness. And the author is Tana Marshall. And Tana joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tana. Hello. Well, we're not going to have any stress in this conversation, that's for sure. We're going to end that right now, correct? Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> that's the goal. That's the goal because you live in a big city. You live yeah. in a big metropolitan area, Los Angeles, and you have figured out a few things to help people. Now, we're going to talk about those details, but my goodness, why write the book? Maybe you just ought to keep these secrets to yourself. Oh, my gosh, why? If they get out there, maybe people will be more relaxed and nicer to each other. So what was the motivation? Well, the motivation started with a trip to Hawaii I took, and I just was so taken by how kind everybody was to each other, not just tourists, not even in touristy areas. Just the the residents there were so kind and courteous, and I thought, wow, I am not used to this at all, but how wonderful. And I thought, gosh, I'm going to move here. And then I thought, no, I don't want to move. What can I do to bring those ideas here so that people are kinder to each other? And I had been reading and studying spiritual, self-help, personal growth stuff for about, oh gosh, about seven years at that point. I was about 28. And so I just started writing a list of topics and stressors and how people could deal with them, things that I had used, things that I come up against every day and... uh, tools that had helped me in the hopes that other people would utilize them, find them helpful, 
so that they can have a more peaceful day. And I also threw in a reminder to just be kind to each other. Just open a door for somebody. Smile at people. Those little things go so far between the two, dealing with your daily stress, taking the time to be kind to one another. It could create an infinitely, infinitely more pleasant environment for everybody. You talk about learning how to master the art of living peacefully. So this is an art. I mean, this is something we have to work at. This is something we have to practice. Absolutely. Uh, there are some people in the world that it seems to come naturally. Things just kind of roll off their back, but they're definitely the exception. And it, everybody's buttons get pushed by different things, whether it's family members or bosses or coworkers or traffic. There's a, there just always seems to be something. And it, it's everywhere. It's not just big cities, but there are more of these stressors in the big cities that people have to deal with every day. I remember years ago when I lived in New York City, you know, walking down the sidewalk, you rarely connected eye to eye with somebody. Yeah. You know, and it was... I would, and I and, and I've always lived in a smaller city, or and, and I grew up in the country. So you know, when you knew everybody, it was it was kind of a I don't know, it was kind of a shock to me at the time. I was young, and you know, figured it, hey, everybody would want to talk, but nobody seemed to want to talk. <laughs> yeah, it has come become that way, and unfortunately, there are certain areas and places and times where it's best not to make eye contact because you could be asking for trouble. Right. And th- Today, especially, right? About. Yeah. Today, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I'm talking about just in general. If you're just walking down the street in broad daylight where there are a bunch of people around, you can definitely make eye, eye contact and smile at people. And, and I try to do that all the time. And I say, hello, good morning. And people look at me like I'm crazy, <laughs> but I do it anyway. Well, and that, and that does, uh, just that one thing, just those, you know, just smiling and saying hello in a friendly way, uh, it's going to make people feel better. Exactly. And it might not even hit them till later because I'll, I'll still get the, what are you looking at look <laughs> from people. But sure. I know sometimes people will smile at me and it catches me off guard. And I think, did I smile back? And whether I did or not, it, it warmed my heart and made me feel better. Just to see somebody smiling, it, it makes you feel better. And whether people know it or not, when you smile, it sends a message to your whole body that, that things are okay, things are good. So it's good to just smile for yourself as well as at other people. I think part of our dilemma in this modern age of high-tech gadgets, and you have a, a chapter about that, Yes, uh, is that, you know, we just need to text everybody and we just need to email and, you know, we can Twitter and we can do all these fast things. We don't really need to look at anybody anymore. <laughs> that is a concern of mine. I believe that we're losing touch with each other. Yes. One-on-one contact, in-person contact. And although these gadgets seem to keep us more connected more of the time, you can talk to anybody 24 hours a day anywhere in the world but where's that interconnection, the human connection? I think we're missing that. Now, you, I, I like this. Uh, <laughs> I like this one chapter heading: "Stuck in a funk." Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that sounds like a bad day. Yeah, I have them, and I wrote that one at the end of an especially bad day, and I <laughs> put my husband through the ringer because I just was in a mood and. 
nothing he said or did could get me out of it. And then because you can't get out of it, you feel worse. And I know a lot of people have those days and you don't mean to think so low, but you just one thing happens and then it builds and builds and builds. And then you really feel like crap by the end of the day. So I know that because I have another check for good days and bad days. Everybody's got a good day or a bad day. But when you have one of those, when you feel like you're literally sinking into a hole of despair, it's it's a horrible place to be. And I just want people to know you're not alone. You're going to come out of it. It's not going to last forever. And here's what you can do to help pull yourself out more quickly. That's why you call it a guide to maintaining your sanity, health, and happiness. This exactly. Is, this is advice from uh, someone who lives it and who's figured out a way to just be happier in spite of it. Yes. Well, let's talk about a, another chapter here. Uh, well, you got one that you say is one that gets a lot of reaction is the one on romance. And it's because of primarily it seems to be my readers and also my clients are primarily women. And so it's something that they're interested in. I have a lot of single friends and people that I know that are still out there looking for the right person. And a lot of people have this set idea of what it needs to look like. And it doesn't always turn out that way. And if you kind of release that and let it go and be open to whatever is going to be right for you, you'll be really happy and maybe pleasantly surprised if things look completely different than what you had been expecting all that time. But if you keep yourself in that box, the right thing may not come to you. One of my favorite philosophers, uh, Jim Rohn, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He says, if you want something to happen for you, he says it this way, giving starts the receiving process. And I know you have here random acts of kindness. I, when I saw your title, I, that's what I thought of. You yeah. know, giving starts the receiving process. Absolutely. And not only does it make you feel good when you're doing it, but it does set those universal laws into motion where you're opening yourself up to receive by giving. And I'm talking about just little things, as I mentioned before, opening a door for somebody. If somebody drops something, pick it up. Help somebody who's struggling with packages. Just smiling at people. Just those little things really add up, and they mean a lot to the other people. And if nothing else, it's just going to give you joy in the moment, but it will open you up to receive bigger things. Just that old Boy Scout law, right? Do a good deed daily. Exactly. More than daily. Several times daily. Yes, yes. And it, and it really is. It's amazing how that softens the edges of the day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it makes you feel better because then you don't feel like you're trudging through the day and people are horrible and my life sucks and wow, you know, all that stuff that people end up thinking most of the time during the day. And of course, laughter is so important. So important. It lightens any situation. It's so good for you health-wise. I mean, people have cured themselves of diseases just by laughing. It literally changes your cellular structure and puts joy into your cells, which creates more health. So I'm always looking for reasons to be happy and things to make me laugh. It's, it's really important. If people did that every day, that would drastically change their life. As someone said, you know, we're going to look back on this and laugh. And the person said, why wait? Laugh now. Ah, that's perfect. <laughs> exactly. Why wait? That is so easy to say at this moment where I'm not being bombarded with, you know, 
the stresses of life, but it is so critical. It is so yeah. critical to laugh. I know I took something out of my wife yesterday. She said, why are you yelling at me? I'm not involved in that. Yeah. <laughs> I went, all of a sudden, I just felt all this, you know, this frustration coming out of me, and I thought, this is ridiculous. Why am I yelling? <laughs> yeah, if you can catch yourself and turn it yeah. around, uh, it helps so much. That's for sure. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, here's one. Uh, another chapter heading, White Light. Now, what is that? Oh, I've been doing this for a really long time. I can't even remember where I first learned about this. But it's basically just visualizing white light around yourself, your home, your car, your loved ones, anything that you want to bring the energy up on, anything you want to put protection around. I've been doing this forever, and I've seen it actually work. You know, I always put white light around my car everywhere I lived, and usually there were break-ins in the garages at different apartment buildings. My car was never touched. Um, you know, I put white light around myself when I've been maybe walking or driving through an area where I'm not feeling so secure and I, I feel better because I feel like there's a presence that's protecting me. And all it is is visualizing it. And even friends of mine who are a little bit more skeptical about this stuff, they give it a try and they actually feel better. They feel like they do have some form of protection there. And I know a lot of people think that sounds weird and out there, but it's, it's a very real thing and it really, really works. You also have a chapter called prayer. Yes. That's just basically a reminder that there is a force out there that's always supporting you. And I believe that I mentioned in the beginning of the chapter that just for the sake of convenience, I'm just going to use the word God. You can use whatever works for you or whatever entity that that you look at for support as your source. Um, And it's just a reminder that if you put your thoughts out there and ask for what you need, the support you need, what you want in your life, there is a source out there that will respond to you. And people don't need to feel alone, like no one's watching out for them, that they have no help, they have no hope. There is a force out there that is there to support us. All we have to do is believe in it and ask for the help, and we will get it. How important is the right amount of sleep and rest to deal with the stresses of life? Oh, my God, it's so important. If if you're sleep-deprived, that's going to affect your entire system. You can't think as clearly. I, I believe that they found people who are sleep-deprived often have the same problems with their minds, their brains, as some drug addicts. So... You, it's really important because you need that downtime to replenish your body, your mind. You need to, It's when your brain processes everything that went on during the day. And it's also helpful before you go to sleep to make sure you put good stuff in your brain because what we normally do before we drop off to sleep is we ruminate on all the stuff that happened during the day and we usually go, oh, that happened, oh, I can't believe that happened, oh, that made me so mad. That's the stuff that you're going to be swimming in through the time you're asleep for eight hours, hopefully if you sleep eight hours. But if you put those positive thoughts in your head and you think happiness and health and wealth and success and things that you want in your life and things you want for yourself, then when you're, you're asleep, your mind is going to go work on those things. So it's, it's double duty. It's for your physical health and it's also for your mental health. Let's see. Growing pains. We have to go through some pain to learn, don't we? Absolutely. And primarily there I talk about relationships and how 
people change, they grow apart, and that can take several different forms. Sometimes you don't want to be involved with a certain person anymore for whatever reason. You've outgrown each other. One person has outgrown the other, and the other one's going, wait, what happened? You know, or vice versa, someone's outgrown you, and you're going, wait, but I still want to hang out with you. Or you have a mutual growing apart, or things just kind of dissipate, and you turn into Christmas card friends, and you just communicate once a year with, with a holiday card. So it, it's just talking about how it's not a bad thing. Change is good, and, and change could also come in the form of you lose your job, or you get promoted and someone else doesn't, or someone gets the promotion that you want, or there are changes in your neighborhood. And if you're fighting change all the time, you're, you're going to be setting yourself up for a lot of stress. So if you just realize there's always going to be change, and if something comes along that you weren't expecting or you're not happy about, just accept it as, okay, this is another change, and it's not necessarily bad. Maybe something good will come out of it, and I'll just adjust. Uh, we're going to just talk about one more thing before we find out how to get your book. Uh, I guess when it comes right down to it, you sum it up best with your title toward the end of the book that says, Practice, practice, practice. Yes, you have to work on this every day. You can't just wake up and not put any thought into this because if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always gotten. (laughs) So if you really want to make some changes in your life, if you want to have more peace and health and happiness, you have to set your mind in that direction and you have to work on it all day, every day. And I know it sounds like daunting task, but it's, it's really worth it and if you do it, you'll start to see the results and things will get better and you'll feel better and you'll see that people are reacting to you differently. And you will start to see more peace and happiness in your life. Well, that's what we all want when it comes right down to it. We want to be happy. And that old saying, money doesn't buy happiness. We have to work at it. So you have a guide to help us. Well, Tana, thank you. And tell us how to get your book. Uh, It can be purchased from iUniverse.com. It's also available at barnesandnoble.com. Do you have your own website? I do. It's actually living-peacefully.com. Living-peacefully.com. Well, that yeah. is what we all want to do. Tana, thanks so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for having me. That was Tana Marshall. She is the author of her book, Living Peacefully in a Big City. A Guide to Maintaining Your Sanity, Health, and Happiness. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.